Just bugs? Like what? Your mug today. <laughs> For what, GDPR? No, uh, when you added the report table. What about it? Oh, indexing and unique, whatever. Yeah, things. you, you yeah, put I saw in that. a unique constraint on a column that should not be unique, and we just now found it. Oh, shows how much reports have been used. <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, this episode thing, we're going to try to basically condense three hour-long videos into one hour. Ready, go. I think, Omar, you go first. You've got the best <laughs> like idea of what this is supposed to look like. OK. First, if you really don't want to. I, mean, I don't care. Yeah, go. Go, Justin. OK. Um, so wait, let me readjust all my things here so it looks like I'm actually looking towards the camera here. Yeah, I feel like I'm never looking towards my camera. Yeah. Sorry, one second. That didn't help at all. Okay. So I did mine over uh, Telerik and Kendo UI. It was one of the videos on the Microsoft Visual Studio YouTube page. Um, I chose this one because the last time I used Kendo UI, if I'm honest, it was pretty garbage. And it was pretty frustrating to use. And it was also being used on a Silverlight project. So all of those things combined made for a really fun experience. And I thought, well, this was six years ago, seven years ago. So why don't I watch the video and see if it's just, if it's anything uh, if it's gotten any better? Um, so I'm not familiar with Kendo at all. So maybe give like a high level so overview. Telerik, yeah, and I guess I'll kind of touch on that. Telerik is is kind of the .NET toolkit that they've come up with. Come up with. Think of it as kind of like um, Bootstrap esque. It's a set of controls that you can add to your you you add it to your Visual Studio. It becomes part of your toolbox. You can just drag and drop these components directly into your project, and uh, you know, and kind of build through the designer, and then just rig them up as you would a normal, you know, WPF component or whatever it is you're using. Um, back then, it only had a few things. It was like WPF, Silverlight, and then like. Oh, man, I don't know. Maybe just a few other things. Um, these days, their Telerik control covers anything .NET. So the main ones they touched on were .NET Core, any Mono projects, any ASP.NET, you know, MVC projects, anything. You know, anything uh, that you can use .NET on, they have a a version of Telerik that'll work for that. And on the other half of the coin is the Kendo UI, which is kind of their, what they coin as their polished web and mobile components. This is this is a front-end JavaScript framework that has controls in Angular, React, Vue, jQuery, whatever whatever JavaScript-based thing you can think of, they've, they've tried to create a toolkit around that. Um, so the best way I like to think of it is kind of like Bootstrap. Think of it as just another company's version of Bootstrap. Um, so yeah, they're, uh, they, I'll just kind of touch on the few things they touched on in the video and then they did a ton of demos, which obviously I won't touch on at all. Um, I will note that one of their demos crashed, which made me realize, okay, it's still kind of the same Telerik that it was. Is it like Telerik or Kendo UI core? Did they rename it? They're still the name, the same thing. They've okay. continued, to add, <laughs> just continued to add things. They were trying to do a drag and drop example of a list view and the an entire application crashed. And I was like, okay. That's Telerik. Nice. So it's like a UI editor, almost. Like I, when if, when you're creating like a WPF application, it is drag and drop the controls into the the canvas. Can't is that what this is? Yeah, this is this is you install this, and then where you would see like, oh man, it's been a little while since I've done this, but where you see your list of like WPF controls, you know, there's like your label and your image and your text box and what have you. There's actually another subsection that is Telerik, and then it'll be like. Telerik color picker and Telerik uh, calendar and all these different controls 
that are themed and supposed to be streamlined, customizable, that you can just drag into your application, and they look really pretty, right? And all the controls are themed generally the same. They all they all work generally the same. So you get a real common theme throughout your entire application. Okay. So yeah, so these days they cover everything from uh, web, and they pointed out you know AJAX, MVC, .NET Core. Uh, JSP, PHP, and they even managed to say Silverlight. So they still have that. <laughs> what? They touch uh, mobile applications, so Xamarin, UWP, XAML, and then they have something they call Native Script, which is an open source framework for writing native cross platform apps using JavaScript. Um, and then they had another one that I guess also tied in with Native Script, which is like an Angular TypeScript combination as well. Um, so I've not, I didn't like, I didn't get a chance to look into any of these things, but these are things they say they have, uh, for desktop, they still cover WPF, UWP and WinForms, And then they've moved on to do all these suites of like reporting and productivity tools, testing applications and testing studios for writing automation. Uh, they have their own form of just mock library for writing the mock-up test applications. And then a really big thing that they touched on was like what they call the conversational UI, which is essentially this uh, framework for writing conversational bots and chat bots. Um, that was the most interesting thing they talked about. It's just kind of this natural conversation flow uh, that that uh, they've developed so that you can have a so you can add that to your website or what have you. That seems sounds. It sounded interesting. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is it sounds a little out of place. At the, the way you're describing it is Telerik's like, or I guess is Telerik's the components, I guess, or like the collection of components and yeah. Kindo is more of the... Telerik is like the, from from what I gathered, the way... Are they, they two kinda, separate things? Yeah, like the, two separate things. Okay. Under, yeah, under the same umbrella, Telerik is like the version of the controls that touch the .NET world. And then the Kindo UI is the version of the controls that touch, that are JavaScript-based web i wonder how that works in xamarin is it like in a web view i guess or something in xamarin because you said yeah yeah, yeah. So yeah maybe in like xamarin forms controls hmm. that's what i would guess interesting so if you're dragging and dropping all these elements to make huh? your web page are you still able to use like existing JavaScript libraries you might have? Oh yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah, you're still able to do everything. You can probably retheme these using if you were like, if you liked the, how easy the controls were to drag in and say they 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 worked. So do well, they support forms? They support Silverlight. Do they support Windows Forms? So could we go ahead and could we like add some of these components to like say yeah. our Windows Forms application? Yes. Yes and yes. They have a WinForms um, version as well. Interesting. Uh, that'd be... They use this right now on web admin. I'm pretty sure the color picker that they've been displaying is, uh -huh. a, is a Kendo UI control. So do you just use it by like pulling in a NuGet package? or By pulling in... Yeah, there's probably a Telerik NuGet you can download. Yeah. I think Telerik is Telerik costs money to get um, to get like the base DLLs for whatever version you're doing, or for um, yeah. And I don't know how it would work for the web version, but or look, let me say this: when I used to have it, yeah, free trial. So yeah, it actually costs a subscription fee mm. to be allowed to continue to use the Telerik controls. I'd be uh, interested to see how we're using it then. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that the Kendo UI control, but it's kind of like uh, once you have the DLLs, if you're not pay if you're not paying the subscription fee, you just can't get the next version that comes out, right? You're stuck at whatever the the, the most recent release you had was, right? So, so any so some company you... wanted a chatbot next version. Yep, Microsoft wrote it for them. Microsoft has a chatbot, but this is this would be Telerex version, right? Um, so that's kind of a super speedy description of all the things they have. Um, when I use Telerik, granted it was in the Silverlight world, 
um, there were a lot of features in their tools that weren't fleshed out. For instance, there were a couple of controls like you couldn't even set the width and height on because they hadn't actually implemented them in the control. And so you had to do, you had to go really roundabout ways to get certain features to work correctly. Granted, this was six or seven years ago, right? So now I assume most of these controls, and they they say like in their MVC projects, they've got 70 plus jQuery based UI widgets. Their .NET application has 1200 demos. I don't know what good that all does. Um, but the long and short of it is, it's supposed to be a framework for a very fluid, commonly themed project for a fee. Yeah. So if you're wanting like common UI across multiple platforms, basically. Right, right, right. Yeah. And if you and want business yeah. logic across multiple. Yep. Yeah. And a twist and a test suite that ties in with all of it. You don't happen to have any like code examples because I'm I'm having a hard time like visualize visualizing yeah. how this works. Let me pull up. Uh... And you still have like seven minutes, so if you yeah. don't have anything else, we can go to that. Yeah, up, <laughs> I'm gonna pull up a React demo just because that's something I actually like. Uh... How do I how do I share the screen? On the left hand side, there's a toolbar. Should now, do I share the screen or can I share an individual screen like... share? Yeah, if you click on it, it'll give you an option. Or window or application. Oh, application window, perfect. What is it sharing? Does you see docs and demos? Yeah. Okay. So let's look at charts because those will be the most visually appealing. So this would be a version. This is an example of what I'm sure they still call the Kendo chart. Um, in this case, they have a chart container, which is what they just import. So they must have a set of uh, classes, or I would say components in, re like in some React thing that you uh, download via Node or maybe via their website. And then you can actually import each of the containers. And then you simply would put those components into your project to get this uh, visualization to show up. Look at the actual source. Yeah, so they have a chart. Series of things you would use on a chart. A definition of a data series. So some some name with some data. And then they would build out the actual functional component. Yeah, so is it possible to see that same chart and something else? Like in, uh, I don't know, can you easily change platforms for the same component? Like for that chart, for example. Oh, yeah, sure. You want to see the same? Let's see. Let's do this. I just want to see how like it looks from platform to platform. Yeah. yeah. Let's see here. Let's let's do this one to the charts charts example, and then let's back up on this one. And let's say let's look at something like I don't know. Let's look at MVC demo. And see if they have a chart that says Chad, not chart. Oh, God, this is line uh, bar chart. So bar charts. Close enough. So this is this is the example of the MVC chart. They have source code down here. Definition of a series. Some definite, you know, some some general definition. Here's the name. Here's the title. Here's the legend. Yada yada yada. Looks like this. Here's another bar chart that's uh, a. Uh, vertical instead of a horizontal back to the source code and some definition of a series. Here's a title. Here's a legend. Here's a category. Here's a series. Interesting. So the idea is that you get a, a, a similar or exact duplication to, you know, based on whichever type of, uh, is there a column chart? Oh, there it is. Perfect. There you go. So there's the react version. And there's the MVC version, exact same data. Cool. What was your project uh, six years ago that you did? The original incarnation of Web Admin. Was that Web Portal? No, it was called 
BBUI. No. It was called BBUI. Yeah. Okay. Really? Yeah, it was. Okay. And that was, yeah. So, so a lot of what's in the initial release of Web Admin actually existed, still exists in Source Control from seven years ago. But it was written in Silverlight, and they abandoned the project because they actually abandoned the project right before Silverlight went belly up because they didn't think that mom and pop shops, they didn't think they could get it out to enough mom and pop shops. And then Silverlight crashed anyways. And they're like, okay, good. We can abandon this project. Mm -hmm. Okay. Their failure was validated. It wasn't a failure. I did really good. <laughs> it actually looked really good. Yeah, I never heard anyone complain about it. So I think that means you did good, right? Yeah, you weren't here. Oh, I guess you mean since then? Yeah. You never heard anybody bring up like, oh, at least it wasn't as bad as BBUI. Yeah. <laughs> it did look good. I actually did a lot of things that I actually did. This is totally off topic, but I actually did a lot of things like visual representations of the media that existed in the panel. I had that in BBUI before before it ever existed, you know, these days. Cool. Okay. So there you go. Anyways, back on topic. I digress. Um, that's the, the 30,000 foot view of what Telerik and Kendo UI are. Cool. So is that what the, the video was mostly about? Just uh, the, the latest and greatest of Kendo? Yeah. The video was just like, um, Telerik. this is, this is, this is basically as fast as I gave this example. That's how fast they explained all the th all the topics that they, you know, cover. Ramon just then, had like demos, and then they just did some demos of some signal R things that they had rigged up, and some chat box things that they had rigged up, stuff like that. Cool. Yep. If it works as well as it was intended to work, back when I used it, I'm sure it's a wonderful project product to use. <laughs> But like I said back then, it was it was actually it was it was a bit difficult. All right, I guess uh, I'll try to go next. Um, so mine was on uh, machine learning video. I don't know where the name of the video is, but it's in the description or whatever. Um, so basically, they start off with kind of going over high level what machine learning is and what it helps you do. Um, it, it basically helps you program the unprogrammable and that's it, their words, not mine. Um, so it's how to program a function that takes in, for example, a bunch of images and decides, uh, is there a face in this image or is there not a face in this image? And when you come across this kind of problem, there's not a obvious place where to start with this. Like how do you start writing that? And what machine learning does, it was, it lets you basically take a, data set um, that, that's easier to kind of label. There's faces in this image. There's not faces in this image. This image. Um, so you can easily create this data set where you label them. And then you use machine learning to create a model, which then gives you this function, basically, that you can give it an input, like an image, and it'll give you a yes, there's a face in it, or no, there's not a face in it. So that's like the really simple explanation of what machine learning is. You take this kind of difficult problem that's the that difficult problem to program, and you use machine learning to create this model that's that takes in some input and gives you some output. Is kind of the high level simplified view of it. Um, after that, they kind of talk about the different tasks in machine learning. So the different tasks in machine learning is there's three of them that they went over is classification, which is, is this A or is this B? So in my previous example, is there a face in this image? Is there not a face? Uh, the second one is regression, which is basically trying to predict a number like how much or how many um, so what's the temperature going to be tomorrow or what's the price of a t-shirt in the image uh, so that's regression third one's clustering so it's how is this data organized what are the groups that these different that all the stuff in this uh, data 
like how can you group things basically so like if you have a bunch of news articles how do you group the news articles into different um topics if you have a bunch of sales data how do you group people into types of buyers right that's another one um so that would be clustering um so after that that's the beginning of the video basically and then they have it in a about machine learning.net oh so that's uh the name of the or part of the name of the video is ml.net which is basically microsoft's machine learning framework um they just released it back in build which was a few months ago in may it was one of their big conferences um although it was just released a few months ago it was heavily used internally for like the past decade is what they said like it it was actually used in bing uh bing's ad prediction excel's chart recommendation powerpoint design ideas um windows 10 defender and a bunch of other products internally uh there's already been four versions since they released it although they haven't i don't think they've they didn't say it in the video, but I don't think they've had like a like a 1.0 release. Like it's right now they're at 0.5 or something, 0.0.5, whatever. Um, so I'm guessing they're building to like an official main release. Um, but they didn't say it explicitly in the video. Or maybe I missed it. Uh, so... ML.net basically gives you tools to build your own machine learning models, train them, and consume them, is the gist of ML.net. Uh, it's open source, and there's a it's on GitHub. They have the whole source code up there, and they also have a separate repository with a bunch of examples, like a bunch of example projects. Uh, so what the framework actually gives you, it gives you an API to do training and consumption. So you can use the training or the, the API to basically either train your model or to just use a, use someone else's model that someone else built and feed it inputs and get a prediction or get an output. Uh, they also give you transforms, which that's kind of just. I guess a machine learning definition, which is essentially data pre-processing. So it's just taking like a plain text file and converting it into something a little bit more readable by the algorithms that actually create the models. So like, um, I, I guess I'll get into that in one of the examples that they have below. Um, basically take text and turn it into like numbers that the algorithm knows how to use or values that the algorithm knows how to use. Another thing that they give you in the framework is something called learners, which is, again, like a definition in machine learning for the set of classical machine learning algorithms. And they give you a couple. So there's like five or six different learners that they give you out of the box. What, which ones do they give you? If you uh, the ones I have listed are linear, boosted trees, SVM, K-means, and um, I, I'm guessing they have more because those are the ones they have listed that they said whenever they were talking about that. But in one of the examples, they use something called a uh, factorization machine. Um, so yeah, they give you a pretty good handful of algorithms out of the box and then they just recently have some ex added some extensions so that you could use tensorflow and other machine language frameworks and there's also an example of using tensorflow one of the examples i have below um then they they kind of show what was what they had before this or what Microsoft offered before this, they have what's called Azure cognitive services. I don't know if y'all have heard of that. Actually, I think Jack, you've, I think used this before, haven't you for the text or not text, the uh, speech recognition. I don't think so. Oh, I, okay. I well, there's this thing called, that. yeah, there's this thing called Azure cognitive services where um, essentially Azure or the cloud holds all the, the model and everything and you just 
you knew up basically an instance of the model, you give it some input, like say a picture, and it tells you there's a face or not a face in it, depending on what service you're using. Uh, I think the example that they use is getting sentiment on a on like product reviews. Um, so they give it like a comment from a product review and it gives you a sentiment reading on it saying this is 96% good or 5% good, meaning the customer was unhappy with it. Um, and, and they were trying to make a point with that because one of the example or whenever they were demoing that, I guess one of the messages or product reviews that they gave the cognitive service was on a vacuum cleaner. The comment was this vacuum cleaner sucks so much dirt. And the service actually said it was a bad, a negative, um, sentiment, which really it's not a negative sentiment. It's just probably because it has the words sucks in there. It thinks it's a negative. Yeah. Yeah. It thinks it's a negative center. It's a negative comment unless you give it the context of a vacuum cleaner. And that's a whole other problem. (laughs) Like what is the product? I understand what this product is now. So that that's kind of the point they were trying to make is like, if you, if you have something or you have a need to make your, your machine learning or your AI basically, more customized to you, then use ML.net to train your model. Um, Because these cognitive services that Azure provides, they're good, but to a certain extent, if you you want to train them and customize them to your specific needs, you're going to want to do something like something with ML.net. So when you're training, I was wondering, so if you're wanting to figure out whether an image has a face in it. I mean, you can't just pass it like the bits or the bytes of the file. You have to perform some sort of algorithm like on the image. You have to look for patterns of pixels, um, maybe like edges and colors, shadows. Um, does ML.net offer that or you said? Yeah, yeah, that's in one of the examples below. It's uh, image class- classification. Um, okay. That's actually the last example. Uh, if you want, we'll skip straight to that. It doesn't matter the example. Uh, no, that's fine. I was just wondering if it just did like the the algebraic portion of machine learning, or if it also did like the. I can't completely answer that because I don't know. Um, the one example that they did with images was the image classification and deep learning, but the way they did it was they were using the TensorFlow extension that they just added. Right. Um, so. There's tons of TensorFlow models already out there that people have like trained and made really good and made available to people. So there's this one called the one that they use in the example. It's called Inception, which you can. It's a model to tell you to classify images. So it tells you there's a there's a um, there's a cat in this uh, picture. There's a golden retriever in this picture. Um, so what they did is using ML.net. It was actually surprisingly simple. Like all they did is basically load in this uh, TensorFlow model, which is just a file that you can download. They load it into this object, uh, a specific ML.NET object. Uh, Let me back up a little bit. All you have to do to use this, like you can just create a console application and um, add the NuGet package for ML.NET. And that's all you have to do to start using this. Um, so going back to this um, example, you just new up this object to, uh, or this utility to load in the TensorFlow model, and then you you basically load in the image that you're going to want to classify. You can do some, I think in the example they do some manipulation on it. They like resize it and only grab certain pixels that they want off the image. So I don't know if that answers your question, but they did offer that where you could like resize the image and grab a certain part of the picture. And then they feed that to the model and it gives back a classification of what what's in the picture. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, so that's that example. That's the image classification and deep learning that's using TensorFlow. And it's actually something fairly new that they just added in the past one or two releases. Did that somewhat answer your question? Yeah. Um, so it does sound like they're using, they're, they're leaning on TensorFlow to do maybe the image processing. And then they're providing a real simple way to just use that TensorFlow model. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're doing the image process. You're doing the the input image processing. So, like, if you were to send me a pi picture or upload a picture to my service and say, classify this or tell me what's in it, I would actually take that image and resize it and grab a part of the picture that I'm concerned with and pass it to the model. Okay. The model, it's a static model, I think, is the way they put it. TensorFlow, it's like a, it's a thing in TensorFlow. It's called a static model where they've already trained it. It's it's a, it doesn't change. They just give you the file, and you load it in and give it an input. It gives you an output. Okay, and you, I think you could train a new model using TensorFlow, but I think is that right? Yeah, and that was one of the things they're saying. Right now, they don't have the tools in place to like train a TensorFlow model, but you can still continue to train that model using Python or F Sharp or R or whatever you're doing your model creation in. And it's the model that's all that stuff that you can't actually program. Like they've programmed the unprogrammable, and it's just all this, yeah, like seemingly nonsensical data in this file, right? Yeah, the model I'm not clear on. This is like my intro to machine learning. <laughs> okay. I don't have a very good understanding of what that model really consists of. Yeah. As far um, as I'm concerned, I have no idea. What's that? As far as like an image based, like if you're trying to trying to build a model that tells you whether it's a there's a smiley face in the picture or not, mm -hmm. that model would be interesting to see. Yeah. I feel like I feel like any model would be interesting to see at this point because I'm I, I mean fairly new to this. I don't, I don't know what the I'm guessing the model is just like values that TensorFlow Yeah the knows values that suggest it to a certain percentage that this thing is gonna be what yeah. you think it's gonna be. It's like a man, I wish I could remember my machine learning class better. I feel like it's a subset of values that essentially to like like 96% certainty these are these are smiley faces. Yeah. These are the certain characteristics of this image that make it a smiley face. Yeah. All right, so I'll go over the other two um examples that they did real quick. It's uh, the first one was GitHub issue classification. So basically, someone enters a new issue in GitHub, and you want to automatically label it saying what area of the code it's in. So they're actually using this right now in CoreFX on GitHub. CoreFX is one of the repositories they have. And if someone enters an issue, the example they had was web client, web socket client throwing some exception, blah, blah, blah. Um, as soon as they submit that, this um, model takes that and spits out a tag saying area system.net. So the system.net namespace, that's the area that this bug is probably resides in because web client or the socket web client is in the system.net namespace because that's where all the web client stuff's in. Um, so that's the high level of what this problem is trying to solve. And um, the example they did in the video, they basically showed you how to, well, they didn't show you how to, but they, they had basically a plain text file with um, a history of issues in the repository. And it had like the the title, the description, and the area, and all the labels on it, the tags on it. And then, so with ML.NET, you load in this plain text file, you 
you add what's called transforms, I think. What is it called? Transforms. Okay, let me back up. You create this pipeline object, and that pipeline pipeline object, you load in this that plain text file, and then you tell it what to expect, like on each line, what to expect, how to parse it, basically, telling it that it's going to have a title, a description, and a label, and then you tell it um, what you want the features to be. This is another machine learning definition, I guess, is... Uh, the features is what is like the inputs to the model. So in this case, it would be the title and description and tag. And then the, what was it? The label is what you're going to, it's what it's trying to tie it to. So the end result is you have this model that you can pass in a title and description and it gives you a area label. So it tells you what area of the code that title and description goes with. Um, and so the demo is basically showing you how to write the code to do that. You have to have a really big set of uh, like issues. issues that you've already done for that to work well. Yeah. You'd have to, yeah, you'd have to have tagged a lot of issues, which I don't know. In some of those big projects, they're, they're pretty good about tagging stuff. Like we might be able to do it with our, um, at least in, when we were in TFS, I feel like we were pretty good about tagging stuff like um, the work items or QA was, not developers. <laughs> we were good about putting a tag or some tags, but yeah, we were oh, consistent in putting the right tag on everything. Yeah. Yeah, that's another thing, right? It's false positives, false negatives, but you're gonna, you're definitely gonna get. Yeah, and so um, also whenever you're creating this model, you do have a ability to, I forgot what they call it, but basically test the mo evaluate the models, what they call it, um, which is basically just testing the model. So you have a another set data set separate from the input data set that you're training it on that you can then. Once you have a model, yeah, test it saying like, hey, give me the area of this title and description. And then it gives you the wrong it gives you the wrong area. So you're like, nope. <laughs> and you basically and if it's a bad grade, then you have to retrain it. Usually you use 10% of your data set. So if you have a thousand issues, then you would just call off the first one hundred and you would call that your test set. And then you would feed it the other nine hundred as your training set. So that it would uh, go through and learn off those 900, and then you would revert back to the 100 to to test it against. And you would already know the labels for those 100, but you wouldn't tell the the, the algorithm what those labels yeah. are. Yeah. See, that you, sounds like a pro tip. They didn't say that in the video. Yeah. <laughs> so you would run you would run the test against those 100 that you already know the labels to, and then when it determines what it thinks the labels are, you would go back and run a comparison on the labels it generated versus the labels that you already knew. And that's mm -hmm. how you get your percentage of correctness based on your model is if it gets 99 out of 100 right, it's probably doing a pretty good job. Yeah. And there's an, another thing in machine learning called k-folds, which is where you use the same thousand inputs, but it does, the k-folding technique is it would use the first 100 as a test set and the next 900 as the model. It would run it and then it would move up one by making the second 100 the test set and then running it on the other 900. And so mm. it folds through the, the test set 100 at a time, constantly running against itself, and then it, it tunes itself using the folding algorithm so that you're supposed to get your best odds doing what's called k-folds. That sounds cool. Yeah, so I think I just ran out of time. But the other example was Movie Recommender, which was kind of like a poor man's Netflix and uh, yeah, they just go over the different types of um, learning algorithms that they have. And the one that they have available for you is called factorization machines. It's a binary classification learner. And all that really means is it gives you a yes or no back from the model. So like, is this a good movie to show X user? Yes or no? versus a percentage like you would on some of the other learners. All right, Jack, you can go now. 
All right. Um, so I was also watching a video off the Visual Studio uh, YouTube channel. Um, and this one was talking about Blazor. Um, and so they they said they called it Blazor. It's a combination of browser plus Razor. And so I guess I'll get into Razor for a little bit. Um, Razor is a syntax. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong. I've never been exposed to this stuff before. But Razor is a syntax for um, like .NET templating in, in for web pages. Um, so a templating ed engine would be you've got kind of a pseudo HTML file on the server, and you can inject some values and variables. You can perform some logic um, on the server before shipping that web page to the browser. And so you could just change stuff like a title that says, hello, user. Um, if, if Omar is logged in, it would say, hello, Omar. And the Omar value would get set on the server. Um, and so what uh, Blazor does or offers is it lets you use the Razor syntax um, to run kind of dynamic code once the page is already been put on the browser. So it's kind of like a replacement for JavaScript. Um, it's using WebAssembly. So um, it's my understanding, if you can compile anything to WebAssembly, you could do C Sharp, Python, you know, whatever languages are out there, they just need to get compiled into WebAssembly. Um, uh, it uses .NET Core. Um, I guess that's nice. There are some projects available, like some sample setup projects available in Visual Studio. Um, there's a standalone Blazor. It's just the client side of it. So like your, um, I don't want to say Angular because I don't know about Angular, but it would just be your client side code. And so what's kind of cool about just your client side code is you could take these files, you could put them on any server and that server does not need to have .NET installed whatsoever. Those files just get shipped to the browser and the browser runs the .NET code. Um, so if you want to have a Linux server and you don't want to install .NET Core or ASP.NET, you can. The server is just going to ship all the files that the browser needs um, and the browser will take care of the rest. Yeah, so it's kind of like if you want to put it like on, you know, how GitHub I.O offers those static web pages where you can just put HTML and JavaScript out there and it handles it for you. You don't even have to have a server. Yeah. Um, you can basically run that version, the client Blazor on that. You just give it, you basically have GitHub host the DLLs and HTML and JavaScript and it runs it all in the browser. Yeah. Um, the presenter Daniel, he was saying that this is still pretty experimental, early stages, not ready for any large entity to start using. Um, the actual amount of data that's getting downloaded by the browser, so that all your dependencies um, and then your actual custom code that you've written, it was almost two megabytes worth of data. I think that's, that's very small for a .NET application, but that's pretty large for a web application. Um, and so he was saying that one of their goals is to get that amount of data somehow compressed down to one megabyte. Um, he was talking about maybe there'd be some browser caching so you don't need to download um, like those generic system libraries every time. Um, and part of his demonstration, he did go into, I think he had Chrome open. And he went to the network tab and you could see all these DLL files get downloaded. Um, and once he did that, he demonstrated debugging in the browser. Um, let me see if I can, I'm not going to debug, but I'm just trying to figure out what tab he opened to do that. Debug like in developer console? Yeah. Um, I think maybe he launched the debugger from Visual Studio, and that just brought up a second page for him in the browser. Um, but you could see all the DLLs that were loaded in the browser. You could I mean, double-click a DLL and see the code, um, just as you'd written it in your IDE. You could set breakpoints. So he set a breakpoint on a button click um, that was written in .NET, 
That's okay. interesting. So you're saying he clicked on a DLL and it showed like an if statement as if you were as if with like yeah. the names and everything, the way you wrote it in your editor. Yeah, yeah it hit up. It had all of your uh, line breaks, your spacing, your tabs, whatever. Like it, it looked like you would just. It looked like the code as it would appear in your, in your Visual Studio. That's impressive. That must be new because um, I, I used Blazor a little bit like a month ago. I was telling you earlier. And you couldn't you couldn't even run it in debugger mode using the full web server version where you're running ASP.NET Core on the back end, like through Visual Studio. If you had F5, that wasn't working at the time. You had to actually publish in order to run the code. <laughs> Didn't we do a Future Friday project using Blazor? Yeah, I'm or still I'm it? still working on it. Okay. That was yeah. He did say it was still pretty buggy. So when he first tried to do the debugging, um, an error had appeared saying like the debugging failed. I think there was maybe a WebSocket exception. Um, but for some reason, clearing his his cache and local storage resolved that issue. I think his his, his exact words were, um, "Oh, this bug is happening again." <laughs> so they're still working on that. Um, but yeah, he set a breakpoint on a button click. And then he went back to the, the Blazor page and he clicked on the button and, and the code stopped and the breakpoint, I mean, he was just sitting there at the breakpoint. Um, he had also said that, um, I mean, it's kind of just a proof of concept now, the debugging. Um, he was saying that stepping still doesn't really work reliably. Um, locals, like looking at your local values in the code is not implemented whatsoever, um, but they are gonna work on that. Um, I went over, you can host these as static files, so the server doesn't need to have .NET, but there are some starter projects available in Visual Studio that do offer the whole, um, you've got the Blazor client, you, you can have an ASP.NET server, and if you use that project, if you, if you create a new project using that um, template in Visual Studio, it also adds a shared project, and so you've got your client, server, and shared projects. Um, and you can sh use code from the shared project in either of your applications. Um, so he was saying that while you don't need to have .NET installed, it does. There is that added benefit that you can share code between the server and the client. Um, uh, another part of the demonstration was showing how you could use, you could still continue to use your existing JavaScript libraries. Um, you could also call on um, JavaScript from within Blazor. Um, his example was somebody had created, um, I, I think this is right. I think somebody in the community had created a library to call some, I'm going to back up on that. Um, anyway, the demonstration was just, it was a JavaScript pop-up. Um, he clicked on a button. The button was coded in Blazor. He he clicked on the button, and a JavaScript pop-up appeared. There was a um, a text input in the pop-up. He entered some value. He clicked OK, and then that value showed up back on the web page. And so there is Blazor to JavaScript communication, and, and there's also JavaScript back to Blazor communication. Um, that was yeah. There's like full JavaScript interrupt. Okay. I actually still have 15 minutes left of this video to watch. Um, I was finding bugs all the time, <laughs> so I didn't get to finish it. Blazor's interesting. I think it, it was definitely, the first time I saw it, I thought it was, I was trying to do a project with it like ASAP because I was having a good time with it. It's very like React, but for your Razor files. Or like not as not as dangerous as um, Angular can be. With React kind of for thing. your for your razor files. Yeah, that's the way. That's that's kind of way I think about it. And both of them are. are oh, because of the components and all that. Yeah, you're like. Oh yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. Writing, you're writing. All, oh, all you started this Future Friday project with me. Yeah, I said that. Where have you been? <laughs> <laughs> Where have you been on Future Fridays? No, so we started that project. You were gonna do Blazor. Yeah, we're still on that iteration uh, of Future Friday. We're still working on it. I don't remember what project you're working on, to be honest. That was last Future Friday. 
Yeah, but we're still on that Future Friday because we didn't finish it. Since then, I've proposed a machine learning one that was about uh, uh, the most recent one I proposed was trying to... Maybe I'm all by myself. I think because <laughs> I, I, I told you I wasn't going to work on that, I had a different idea, which was the machine learning. I wanted to write a machine learning project. For baseball. For baseball. Oh, that's right. Guess, they could try to break the record for number of hits in a row by guessing which batter was going to get hit on a get a hit on a singular day. Uh, because yeah. sports gambling is now legal. Is it? I thought at the time that was like in the media. Oh, that wasn't why. I just wanted okay. to beat the record. <laughs> no one's ever been able to guess fifty six in a row, so I wanted to try. Yeah, I forgot that in the demonstration, uh, this guy had went over the components. Um, seemed pretty cool. You could have components within components. Yeah, so um, I think it's really cool that you're like the whole concept of Blazor that it's basically no JavaScript if you really want to. Like, no JavaScript at all. It's not like Silverlight or some other um, some other solutions that have come out in the past. Like So Silverlight was you had to have a plugin. Uh, the user had to have a plugin. WebAssembly is actually supported by all the major browsers right now. And yeah. then there, there was solutions back... There, there's been solutions at least to transpile like C-sharp code or Python or pick your favorite language into JavaScript, like TypeScript, for, for instance, transpiling TypeScript into JavaScript, which you still get JavaScript as your end result. Whereas with Blazor, you're you're actually running C sharp code, and you're well, you're running the C, you're running the .NET runtime in WebAssembly, which is in turn running your C sharp code. Yeah, he was saying that it uses Mono. Um, yeah, there is, I think, like one or two lines of JavaScript necessary, um, and all that does is bootstrap your project. But you don't have to write that. You're not. You're, like you said, you're not writing the JavaScript, but like two yeah. lines of JavaScript are necessary to get it working. Yeah, but that's basically like a, a check, like is WebAssembly, uh, is WebAssembly actually uh, available or implemented in this browser, and then start up the .NET runtime essentially. Yeah, and if WebAssembly isn't supported, then it falls back to a mono implementation in JavaScript. Which that shouldn't happen unless you're on some weird browser. <laughs> that could happen. Yeah. And so a little bit of history, I guess, on on the runtime, which is kind of interesting, is it was actually just some guy that decided to implement the runtime. It wasn't mono, actually. It was another implementation of the runtime. I can't remember what it's called. But anyways, he implemented that in WebAssembly, and then then they turned to um mono and and like you said this is still like in the very early stages and i think not too long ago they were talking about they're still not even 100 percent sure that this is the route that they want to go where the runtime is implemented in WebAssembly, and you run the dll's in the browser which the other way the way to do it would be to have a compiler that compiles your C sharp into WebAssembly. Which I don't know. If you do it that way, you would still the end result would still be static files that you could put wherever you want, right? Like you were saying the GitHub yeah, pages. I think so. Okay. You would just I feel like you might lose some of the .NET stuff. <laughs> would you be able to debug? I'm sure you could find a way to, but you lose, you're basically not, you're not, it's C-sharp, but it's not, because <laughs> okay. C-sharp runs in the runtime, in the .NET runtime, and if you're compiling the C-sharp into WebAssembly, it's now a static file that the browser is executing, not the runtime, the .NET runtime. I see. Yeah. 
which I feel like they've probably abandoned that, but it was, it, I, I'm pretty sure there was talk about that's still an option or a valid option. I mean, this video came out uh, September 14th, so like two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It sounds like they're still chugging along with this option. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's that been the option since I started using it, too. It was like, what, two or three months ago? They've already got a cool name for it. Blazer? Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. We did it in an hour. Yay. Machine learning in 20 minutes. Very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> We're all machine learning experts now. Class. I think training is probably the hardest part of of that. No, writing the method is the hardest part. Writing, <laughs> writing the training method? Is, right. Training is training. You just give well, it. Like writing the training algorithm. Like if yeah, you're that's, using... that's writing the method. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay. Right. Writing the thing that knows how to discover there's a face in a picture. Yeah. That's the hard part. And then feeding it data to learn. That's yeah. the easy part. There's a so to me, things to me, the, the whole thing was like, there's a bunch of tools like the top and the bottom. So there's the like data transformation and um, making it ready for the algorithm. And then there's the using of the model or whatever. The real meat of it to me was like the learning algorithm. Like there's just basically one line that, that's the the most difficult part that one that algorithm that's the that is the machine learning i think like the other parts is just getting you ready to feed it to the algorithm and then after that is using the model um that algorithm part like the actual what you wanted to do yeah that's that's i feel like these days most of the algorithms not most algorithms most everything you could want to do or a significant portion of things you could want a machine learning algorithm to do, there's probably already a method that exists for, for yeah, there's already algorithms out there that, that data. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so like Jack said right now, probably the hardest part for the, the main or the most popular, um, AI problems is just training. Like you're you're gonna have to constantly train and make your model better and better. Yeah, and you can overtrain. That's a real term. That's a real machine learning terminology. Specific set of uh, characteristics, and then when yeah. you feed it something that doesn't even have those characteristics, it starts to fail significantly. So, so I guess an algorithm for everything already exists, but the the better you can write the next algorithm that does the same thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe that could be the next topic is just machine learning. I feel like that would easily take up an hour. Yeah, machine learning is a, that's a lot. Yeah. There's another thing too that you touched on. We could do a like live coding of. No, that might take a long time because once you hit run and train, that takes a while. To yeah, in one hour. <laughs> and it's super boring to write a machine learning. It's like. Oh, it's fifty percent done. Going on, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then you test it and it gets like 42% right. You're like, crap, now we get to start over. Yeah. What was it? Uh, oh, image processing. Yeah, you talked about that. about Because that's another portion of that is like the image processing that has to occur to, to discover the smiley face in an mm-hmm. image. And has to like bring that smiley face forward. That's a whole nother graduate level topic. It's just digital image processing. And yeah. then to tie that in with machine learning. Boy, that's a that's a fat paycheck for the guy that does that job. I wonder how many of these algorithms are coming out of the academic domain versus from from software engineers. Like, if you have somebody with an actual PhD who just knows how to code, like, are all these algorithms coming out of colleges or companies? I would expect there to be a higher rate out of companies. I would think there would be a lot of papers written by academics that propose an idea of how to do a better set of image processing and here are the mathematic formulas, but turning those into suites of machine learning algorithms, I feel like that's that's PhDs that work for the big boys. Okay. And then they write a paper about it afterwards. <laughs> yeah. And then you don't hear about it for 10 years after it already existed. 
true. All right, I think we're uh, done. Cool. Go have dinner. <laughs>